Previously on Flying the Line, the PATCO strike and its impact on ALPA, the J.J. O'Donnell administration, and airline labor. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including the official ALPA app. Download the app for the latest news, easy access to KCM locations, jump seat information, news from your LEC and MEC, and more. It's even got the orange card and an e-version of your member ID. Visit alpa.org apps to download, or search Alpa app in your smartphone's app store. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 7. The End of the O'Donnell Era. The Election of 1982, Part 1. J.J. O'Donnell's last campaign for ALPA presidency ended in defeat and frustration. Multiple allegations of deal-making came from all sides, historically standard fare for ALPA's politics. Because he carried the baggage of 12 years in office, O'Donnell knew he faced an uphill fight. Still, he was a known factor, which counted for something in uncertain times. In any close election, small factors come into play. But almost certainly, O'Donnell would not have lost to Hank Duffy in 1982 had it not been for the Delta machine. Delta's pilots have always been relatively low-key in their ALPA activities. On one occasion, at the 1976 Board of Directors meeting, they failed to exercise their right even to nominate a candidate for executive vice president. Two pilots from TWA wound up fighting it out with each other for the post. Until Hank Duffy's campaign in 1982, only two Delta pilots, Al Bonner and George Berg, had mounted campaigns for Alpa's presidency. Both were feeble, and oddly enough, both in competition with each other at the 1974 BOD meeting. But generally, until Hank Duffy became a visible presence in Alpa's national councils, owing to the crew complement controversy, most airline pilots regarded the Delta pilot group as only minimally in Alpa. All that was about to change. Beginning in 1980, a dynamic group of Delta pilots, led by MEC Chairman Nick Gentili, began to remake that image. They would burst upon ALPA's national political scene. This group of Delta pilots would unseat an incumbent seeking re-election, an unprecedented event in ALPA's then 51-year history. Both admirers and detractors alike would call their disciplined operation the Delta machine. Nick Gentili's lieutenants, Bill Brown, Les Hale, and Cam Foster, would fine-tune the Delta machine into a formidable political weapon and use it to win a stunning victory for Hank Duffy. Augie Gorse, who won election as Eastern's MEC chair in 1980, believed the genesis of the Delta machine lay in Nick Gentili's staunch unionism, then an unusual trait for a Delta pilot. According to conventional wisdom, Delta pilots were historically the kids born with silver spoons in their mouths, beneficiaries of a benign management they never had to fight. This view was particularly prevalent among the Eastern pilot group. But Gorse knew it wasn't true of all Delta pilots. 
Among the things that Gorse and Gentili agreed upon was that TWA and United, under their respective MEC chairs, Harry Hoaglander and John Ferg, had become the proverbial bullies on Alpa's block. Gorse and Gentili also agreed that the major reason for the dominance of the United-TWA alliance was the rivalry between their own airlines. Reflecting the pressures inherent in their competitive route structures, Delta and Eastern often canceled each other out in Alpa affairs. In the spring of 1982, nobody expected O'Donnell to run for a fourth term. He had seemed to exclude that possibility in his opening remarks at the previous executive board meeting. After recounting Alpa's woes, all of which he described as having their origin in the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978, O'Donnell launched into a discourse on the effect of these troubles internally. As everyone at the meeting knew, the Eastern pilots were seriously considering a formal campaign advocating O'Donnell's immediate recall, largely owing to their dissatisfaction with his handling of the PATCO strike. It's worth noting that long-standing animosities existed between O'Donnell and his own pilot group. The root of these disputes lay deep in the tangled past of Eastern's internal politics. A messy conflict over investment philosophy between O'Donnell and Chuck Dyer, Eastern's Retirement and Insurance Committee chair, had further inflamed the situation. By the time of the PATCO strike, these animosities festered into a formal MEC resolution denouncing O'Donnell, clearly an indication that the Eastern pilot group wanted O'Donnell to resign immediately. As Delta's MEC chair at the time, Hank Duffy actively involved himself in stopping Eastern's effort to recall O'Donnell, arguing that repeated efforts to recall ALPA presidents had historically been counterproductive. Duffy was instrumental in persuading Gorse to drop the matter. O'Donnell's announcement that he would not seek another term as ALPA's president was almost certainly related to the recall movement. O'Donnell a proud, disciplined, and self-contained man would not admit that, of course. He believed at the time that a conspiracy to force his resignation was building up in the summer of 1981. He almost certainly chose to defuse it by announcing his intention to step down at the end of his term. The 1982 BOD would see an open presidential election with no incumbent. Almost immediately, Speculation about who would fill O'Donnell's shoes became the executive board hot topic. Almost nobody noticed what should have been an obvious fact about O'Donnell's announcement. It left some semantic wiggle room. At the time, nearly everybody understood O'Donnell's announcement as definitive. They certainly did not see it as a ploy. But some O'Donnell supporters, like Jack Bavis and Tom Ashwood, were less certain. They believed that O'Donnell's decision to retire from ALPA was much more tentative and conditional, and that it was motivated primarily by personal matters specific to that particular time of his life. They understood that if certain personal conditions in O'Donnell's life changed, then his political plans might change too. But for the moment, both Ashwood and Bavis, who harbored ambitions of their own, accepted O'Donnell's announcement as genuine. O'Donnell was clearly open to new challenges and a career change, having alluded to this just before his withdrawal statement. He wanted to get on with the next phase of his life, which some observers thought might include government service or even a run for political office. Aside from his personal needs, 
O'Donnell's motivation in taking himself out of the 1982 race owed much to another undeniable political fact. He had totally lost control of his own MEC. An ALPA president who cannot control their own MEC stands on shaky ground. Once elected, of course, they can continue in office with minimal support from their MEC. Indeed, O'Donnell had done so earlier. But on the eve of a national campaign, the lack of MEC support was a formidable handicap. Historically, some very strong candidates for national office had fallen victim to the politics of their MECs. O'Donnell's alpha political career had been unique. He survived at the top with a divided MEC behind him. But as the 1982 election approached, the MEC was no longer merely divided. A clear majority of the Eastern MEC opposed O'Donnell's continuation in office. A true elephant at the time, Eastern weighed in with a total of 3,452 votes. Of that number, O'Donnell would eventually receive a mere 493, fewer than the 532 votes John Gratz of TWA got. Hank Duffy, heavily backed by Gorse, would get the lion's share of the Eastern vote, a total of 2,427. In general, a pilot seeking national office without MEC support had virtually no chance of succeeding. Even candidates who possessed substantial credentials, long ALPA service, and rank-and-file appeal faced impossible odds. For example, Lee Higman of United, whose service dated from the days when he was a Boeing 247 co-pilot, would fail despite a list of credentials that was almost unrivaled in ALPA's history. Higman served on a stunning array of blue-ribbon committees, had written the first administrative policy manual for ALPA field offices, and commanded rank-and-file appeal as a directly elected regional vice president. But he got nowhere when he challenged O'Donnell in 1974 because United's MEC committed to their chairman, Bill Arsenault. Under his tight control, the United MEC refused to endorse Higman's candidacy. Rank-and-file appeal counts for nothing in an ALPA presidential election, only MEC representatives vote. Assuming that O'Donnell's decision to retire from ALPA's presidency at the end of his third term was genuine, what changed his mind? At the time of the spring 1982 executive board meeting, O'Donnell had still not reversed his non-candidate status, but he sounded like a candidate. The brin of bankruptcy, which happened less than two weeks before the May executive board meeting, sent a seismic shock through the assembled board. Braniff's fate and the misfortune of its pilot group absolutely dominated conversation in the hallways and in the meeting room itself. At first glance, one might think that Braniff's failure would be the final nail in O'Donnell's political coffin. But ironically, it opened several political avenues to him. By reminding the delegates that he had predicted major bankruptcies would result from deregulation, O'Donnell was, in effect, saying, I told you so. And as O'Donnell cited a long list of crises looming in ALPA's future, from cabotage to the deficiencies of airline managements, he reminded executive board members that having friends in high places was the best insurance against future catastrophe. O'Donnell took every opportunity to remind the delegates of his influence with the Reagan White House, and it all sounded very much like a campaign speech. 
His approach, demeanor, and emphasis were not at all those of a man whose political sun was setting, but most of the assembled delegates did not interpret it that way. With O'Donnell seemingly out of the picture, several candidates started testing the waters. The May executive board served as a sounding board for those with presidential ambitions. As they took the pulse of their contemporaries, none of them paid much attention to O'Donnell. Bavis and Ashwood were among those considering presidential runs who could logically expect to receive O'Donnell's blessing, having served in his administration. Ashwood's comments to the executive board indicated that O'Donnell had not yet reversed his non-candidacy position, and that everything was still wide open. Likewise, Bavis was busily lining up support before announcing his candidacy. If anybody should have been privy to O'Donnell's intention, it would have been them. Normally, Alpa's political season would not begin until after the May executive board. Both Ashwood and Bavis had tested the waters and liked the results. Each planned to formally launch their campaign in June. Likewise, John Gratz of TWA and Tom Beatum of Northwest planned to announce their candidacies. Hank Duffy, who also intended to enter the race, was so sure that O'Donnell was out of the picture that he consulted with him about strategy and tactics. In fact, Duffy later insisted that if he had known that O'Donnell intended to run again, he probably would not have entered the race himself. Sometime in either late May or early June 1982, the exact date is uncertain, O'Donnell surprised everybody by announcing that he had changed his mind. He would be a candidate for re-election to Alba's presidency once again, this time for an unprecedented fourth term. Next time on Flying the Line, despite the Braniff and Patco debacles, O'Donnell seeks re-election. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 7, Part 1 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright Alpa 2023, all rights reserved.